When you've been through terrible, what is it that reads as eschaton to you? Just a normal, nice life? Welcome back to Chapter, Verse, and Season, a lectionary podcast from Yale Bible Study. Join us each week as two Yale Divinity School professors look at an upcoming text from the Revised Common Lectionary. This episode, we have Joel Baden, Professor of Hebrew Bible and Director of the Center for Continuing Education, and Abdul Rahman Malik, Associate Research Scholar and Lecturer in Islamic Studies. They're discussing Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 through 25, which is appointed for track one of the 23rd Sunday after Pentecost, proper 28, in year C. The text is read for you by student Aidan Stoddart. Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 through 25. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad, and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy, and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem, and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it, or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth, and one who falls short of a hundred will be considered accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord, and their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, but the serpent, its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So, Joel, as I read this passage from Isaiah, I'm left with a question, you know, before everything else is that, like, where does this new heavens and earth fit in to the divine timeline? If this is eschatological, which it clearly is, what part of the eschatology timeline are we examining here? It's not so clear precisely because if you were reading this you know, until most of it, until you got to the end, you might not know you were reading eschatology at all. Mm. It might just be you're reading about a future, uh, a a future of the normal world, but one in which, you know, things are nicer. Uh, Yeah, sure. No one's, there's not gonna be weeping or distress. So no one's gonna be unhappy. Uh, Everyone's gonna live a nice full life. Everyone's gonna build houses and vineyards and they're gonna eat all of their fruits that they plant and they're not gonna labor in vain and their children are gonna be born and, and be and be healthy and happy. Terrific. That's not eschatological. That's like uh, a good life. That's like a that's like a good life. That's that's just that's just not being cursed. 
or maybe it's being like a little bit better than that. Mm. But I don't know that you would think of that eschatology until you get to the last line. And now I've got the wolf and the lamb lying down together. And I know that that's an eschatological paradigm, mm. right? That's classic. But this, a new heavens and a new earth is, eh, you'll live to a hundred. Won't that be nice? Mm. And then you'll die, you'll die in ripe old age. New heavens and a new earth. Wow. It doesn't, it doesn't feel eschatological. So the answer to your question is, I don't know. But also the answer to your question, in part at least, is at least in the Bible, there isn't a consistent, well-developed eschatology that that spans the entirety of the text. Everybody's trying to figure stuff out for themselves on their own. They're creating eschatologies as as they're writing. So later on, we get these very well-developed notions. In Judaism and Christianity, I'm sure, in Islam also, we get well-developed eschatological, as you said, timelines. First, there's going to be uh, the really bad part, and then the war, and then the Messiah comes. And then in Judaism, a different Messiah. There's two Messiahs in some Jewish uh, uh, belief. You know, there's this Messiah come and that Messiah comes and there's going to be a, a recreation and there's going to be a, right, people are going to rise from the dead. And there's going to be judgment, right? All, like, that's a whole, that's a whole, you know, that, that's a whole set of novels uh, right there uh, about the, the timeline of the eschaton. Uh, you can't, you can't get that from the Bible itself, right? The Bible is bits and pieces and small ideas. And this one, I, I mean, and I think what you're, what you're pointing at, this one is in a sense, particularly weird, because it doesn't have the traits of eschatology, immortality, say. Yes. Or, I don't know, like floating in midair or like any of the, you know, this is, it's just, it's just people living nicely. It's certainly to my, to my Muslim sensibilities, eschatology takes on, as you said, a very particular formulation because the Quran speaks about the end of days often and in plentiful ways, all of which end with judgment and God's mercy and God's uh, justice and a kind of an eternality to to our forms as a result of the things that we have wrought while we while we were living i was reminded of william blake's poem jerusalem as i was as i was reading this and i think that helps me sort of contextualize this particular passage as something that is that is that is aspirational Right, the you know as as Blake talks about, Blake speaks about the Jerusalem that that he envisions can be built on England's hills, despite the satanic mills and despite the injustice and d- despite the pain that he's witnessing in this industrializing world. He believes that in this place a new Jerusalem will be built, and that Jerusalem, in as I'm reading this is the Jerusalem that Isaiah speaks about here, a Jerusalem where people live together peaceably, where they build and they don't destroy, where we care for one another, where we live the fullness of our lives, where we inhabit beautiful homes and where even the very nature that we have tried to subdue in the past is now subdued to God's grace. I mean, that it's, it's a powerful... It's a powerful vision, and I think often in these eschatological visions, and I feel this as well within uh, coming from within, within my sort of Islamic uh, and Muslim sensibilities, is that these visions are provided to us as aspirational visions of the world as it should be, and it highlights the world as it is manifestly unjust, 
manifestly uncompassionate, manifestly unequal, manifestly violent, and because we're presented with this such a clear, powerful, compelling, awesome vision of life as it as it could be, it does lead the believer to the senses that is what I must work for. That is what my place in the world should be is to create this kind of place. And I guess in that sense, it totally makes sense, right? Whether whether building that place brings on the eschaton, as you say, or not, it's worth for us to, to, to aspire to this. I, I love what you said about eschatological visions being aspirational. And I think, I think that's universally the case, right? We create understandings of what the, you know, the, the perfected, existence will be as, as, as something to strive for here and now. Sometimes those are harder to achieve, right? You know, if you, what you imagine is uh, we're all going to be up in the clouds, you know, playing harps with wings. That's a hard one to achieve in the, in the here and now. This eschatological vision is, is very, I don't know how achievable it is, but it's very real. It's very, it's very of, of humanity. And actually one of the things that I, I would point to as, as an interesting a signal here, we're, I think we're just used to the language, but maybe not picking up on it, is when it says, I am about to create a new heavens and a new earth. That's not the same thing as saying something like, I'm going to create a heaven on earth. Yes. Or we will all be transformed and transmuted into the into heavenly beings. Yes. It's not saying that. Yeah. I'm creating, I'm creating a new heavens and a new earth. That's simply to say, the ex- it, I'm, I'm going to, like a replicate, it's going to be like a new version of what you know now. Not, it's not total transformation. It's, it's just improved. Uh, but to say, to say heavens and earth, they're going to, they're remaining separate, right? And uh, that, uh, that I think is a fascinating. Oh, that, that is so fascinating, Joel. Because I, I uh, as as you're talking about that, I also think about the, you know, how do we bring the Vedic traditions. Into, into some of this language, right? In, in Hinduism and, 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 and Buddhism with the notion of being reincarnated, of traveling through the wheel, of being born again into the world. Isn't it And in those traditions that a new heavens and the earth is actually in reality created because we enter into it differently every time we go through a process of death and death and rebirth? I think the notions of a new heavens and a new earth isn't very far away from that idea, right? Because because it's a new heavens and the new earth because we enter it and we perceive it differently. There's this wonderful passage from one of the Vedic texts which speaks about this moment in in the womb where as as the process of birth into a rebirth begins, there is a full awareness of the lives that one has one has led and also an awareness that one is coming into life anew. And when one comes out into that world, it's like we forget what happened again. And a new heavens and a new earth is born for us perceptively. I think it's an idea that that my mind is sort of uh, turning over and, and, and playing with. So first of all, I say Judaism also has a notion, a similar notion of, you know, the infant, the, the fetus knowing everything and in the process of birth, it it being forgotten, which obviously resonates. But what you just said, the, the first line after I'm about to create a new heavens and new earth is the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. So fascinating. I don't think you even remember that that line was there when I you said not. what you just said. I did not. I did <laughs> and not. I think that's, yeah. so, and I think that only speaks to the, the power of, of the comparison that, you, that you're making. I think that's, that's fantastic. 
Fantastic stuff. There, there is a line in here, Joel, that does that does doesn't irk me, but makes me stop. And that is, the one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. And that's interesting because I think it's the only place, and and um, correct me if I'm wrong, where the notion of curse or something negative coming from God is in these passages. And that's interesting to me because although we've created a new heavens and, the, and, and a new earth, the capacity for being cursed or doing that which leads to one becoming accursed is still, is still there. It's not, it's not a perfect new heavens and new earth. So I, I, wonder, I wonder how you would read that line or if I'm, if I'm, if I'm reading too much into it. No, that's so, that's so fascinating. It didn't even occur to me as, a, as, a, as, I, as I read past it. But of, of course, if what's being imagined is that in this new earth, there are people who don't make it to 100 and other people are going to be like, boy, what did that guy do wrong? Yeah. That's you're right. It's, it's still, what kind of eschaton is this? But I, but I, but I, you know, to answer your, your, the question you asked, which is like, is this the only, is this the only place the curse is, is in here? On the surface of the text, it is. Underneath it though, this entire text is built on essentially a reversal of traditional biblical and broader ancient Near Eastern curse formulations. So one of the great you know, curse is like, you know, you're, you're not going to, you're not going to be healthy and you're not going to, you're going to be under attack, uh, our classic. But uh, one of the great curses in the ancient Near East was, and it's in the Bible multiple times and it's outside the Bible um, in Mesopotamian texts also, is you're going to build a house and someone else is going to dwell in it. You're going to plant vineyards and someone else is going to eat them, right? The notion of you're, you're putting in all of effort to build your, your, your house, your home, your society, but I'm going to wipe it all away and someone else is going to come in and, and, and enjoy the fruits of your labors. Anybody, I think, in ancient Israel hearing this would recognize that what's being said here is not just it's going to be a very nice life that I'm creating, but this curse that you maybe have experienced, right? This is, this is, this is late Isaiah. This is Isaiah writing after the exile. So they have gone through the worst. And so to say the eschaton I'm imagining is one in which all the terrible things that just happened to you are the most terrible things that can be imagined, not, none of that's gonna happen. That's the, that's the new, when you've been through terrible, what is it that reads as eschaton to you? Just a normal, nice life? Yeah. Right, and uh, we can imagine all kinds of modern equivalents of that. Like, Well, it's, it strikes me as eschaton as healing. Sure. As a bomb. Sure, but, but not, not as needing to be more than that. It can simply be, right, the eschaton is different and changes depending on where you are. And if you are in a place of deep despair and post-trauma, as is the case for Israel at the time that this is written, the eschaton can simply look like not heaven on earth, but just a new earth. Thanks for listening. And thank you, Professors Baden and Malik, for talking through Isaiah for us this week. For a transcript of this episode and lots more Bible study resources, visit YaleBibleStudy.org and follow us on Twitter at BibleYale. Chapter, Verse, and Season is a production of the Center for Continuing Education at Yale Divinity School. It's produced by creator and managing editor Joel Baden, production manager Kelly Morrissey, associate producer Aidan Stoddart, and I'm your host and executive producer, Helena Martin. 
Mixing on today's episode and our theme music are by Calvin Linderman. We'll be back with another conversation from chapter, verse, and season. <laughs>